For more information about First Baptist Church, visit our website at fbclawschool.org. Amen. Thank you so much, praise group. We, thank you. I can hear y'all's muffled singing. That was fantastic. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Proverbs. Proverbs 16, 9. The moment that you thought would never arrive is here. We are wrapping up our study of the irresistible church today. And to kind of give you an idea of how this is going to flow for the next couple of weeks, we are going to, we're going to wrap up our, our look today at being the irresistible church. And then next Sunday, we're going to have our baby dedication. And I'll have a message with regard to that. Our church's, uh, our church's wonderful responsibility with regard to that with regard to bringing up the generations that come behind us, raising them, as the Bible says, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And then the next Sunday, we will begin another study called The Path to Revival, The Road to Revival. We have been talking, we've been, we've been going through, if you listen to the video, we've been going through this honest self-evaluation part. We've been looking at what it takes to be an irresistible church. Number one, why we want to be one. Who it is that's going to make us one. And then what we do with that information. Okay, that's we've been in this honest self-evaluation part. Uh, we're going to start on this road to revival with the hard work. We need to have a revival in our, in our, in our body, a revival in our souls, a revival in our spirit, a revival in our work. As we start to come back together, the work of the church is going to continue. We're going to hit the ground running with the ministries that, that God has, has, has placed on our hearts to reach into the community with a spirit of love and service, the likes of which have not, be, have, have not been seen. So we're going to take a look at that, and I think the way to do that is, to, is for us to take a look at, at uh, hitting the reset button in our hearts. And we're going to look at that in the road to revival. But today... We're going to take a look at the irresistible church and we're going to take a look at, at, uh, at what God has told us we need to do so that he will then make us the church that he wants us to be. And I don't mean church by First Baptist Church. We're certainly a part of that, but I mean the church in general. God wants the kingdom church to be irresistible. He wants to make us that. He wants to, to, to grow us and to make us... Uh, the, the, transparent to the community around us so that they can come in and, and, and be a part of our body. They can, they can come in and, and, and bring their, their uh, gifts and talents to, to bear with ours, to be who we have been created to be. And how do we do that? Well, God tells us in James 4, 8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If we're going to be irresistible, then we have to be near God because God is the one who is irresistible. God simply makes us a reflection of who he is. So we have to draw near to God so that he will draw near to us. And that's part of what we have been, we've been doing. We've been focusing on getting close to God so God can do those tremendous things. And then in verse 10 of James 4, he says this, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. The things that we do, we don't do because they make Heath look good, or they make First Baptist look good, or, or the Winston Association look good, or the Mississippi Baptist Convention look good. The things that we do, we do because they bring glory and honor to God. We are a people that make much of who God is. 
and what God has done in my life and yours and in the life of every person who has got on their knees and confessed their sin and believed on Jesus Christ to be their Savior. God is going to take care of the exalting. We don't need to worry about that. For three months now, I know it seems like just yesterday since we haven't been together for most of this, but for three months now we've been looking at what an irresistible church looks like. What we need to do if we want to be a church that heaven can't resist. A church that people can't resist being a part of. And in case you might have missed a week or two, let's take a quick rundown of the characteristics that we have looked at for an irresistible church. An irresistible church first hungers for the presence of God. Are we a church, as we look at our self-evaluation, are we a church that hungers for God's presence? Do we say, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place and I'm glad of it. I want to worship God. He is here in our midst and I want to worship Him. Do we hunger for the presence of God? An irresistible church also remembers who she is. We remember who the church is. We're the bride of Christ. We are the, we are the, the implement, the tool that God has purpose to use to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. That's our focus. To reach the lost with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. An irresistible church lives heart first. Do you look at us? Do you look at our ministries? Do you look at those things and do you see a hunger to love? Are we reaching into our community heart first? Are we giving everything into our, mission, our ministries heart first? Do we love the way God loves us with everything that we have? Lives heart first. An irresistible church also practices gratefulness. Not only do we understand what God has done for us, the way God has saved us, the way He has cleansed us, the way He has made us whole, the way He continues to, to draw us to Him so that He can teach us more and more and more, the way He grows the church and blesses the church, whether it's with time or resources or people, whatever it is, however God has blessed us, are we grateful? Do we express gratitude to God for that? Is that our attitude? Do we have an attitude of gratitude? We also promote healthy relationships. Healthy relationships. Do we love one another with the love of the Lord? Do we love one another the way Jesus Christ teaches us to love? Now whether that is, a part, whether we're looking at that in the terms of marriage or how we reach out to, to, uh, to different age groups, whether how, how it is that we minister to one another, shut-ins, whatever ministry we have, do we do we do that with the idea of promoting a relationship in the body of Christ that is, that's healthy? An irresistible church is always learning. I hope one thing we have discovered throughout this little walk we've taken through this is that every one of us has something that we can learn. God is always teaching us. We have something to learn. An irresistible church promotes spiritual self-feeding. Yes, we come together on Sundays. And yes, we gather on Wednesdays, whether it's by Facebook now or in person. Yes, we have, uh, we have Bible fellowships. Yes, we have Bible studies. Yes, we have Sunday school where we gather corporately. But are we taking that and are we putting it to work when we're in our quiet time and we have individual time with God? God makes us responsible for feeding ourselves as well. So are we promoting that self-feeding? Do we connect everything to a soul? 
Look, if we don't do anything, if we don't understand anything about being a church that is irresistible to God, it is becoming a church where people understand that everything we do, every ministry we have, every outreach we have, every fellowship we have, we are connecting it to a soul. There are people that are within our sphere of, in, our sphere of influence who are dying without Jesus Christ. And we know that that leads to an eternal separation from God. Y'all, there are souls involved in the work that we're doing. There are eternity. There is eternity at stake in the work that we do. Do we choose to love? An irresistible church chooses to love. Love is a choice we make, right? Love is not an emotion. Love is a choice we make. Why? Because God tells us to love people, even the people that aren't lovely. It's easy to love lovely people, isn't it? But God tells us to reach out to people even and to pray for people who hurt us. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus made that a priority on the cross. So we have to choose to love. Sometimes it's not easy. But as a church that wants to represent the body of Christ, we have to live in a way that draws people to Christ. And we have to love that way. We're not going to argue people to the cross. We're not going to, we're not going to, to even rationalize people to the cross. We have got to love people. They've got to know that we care about what happens to them, them physically and them spiritually. We have to do that. Do we choose to love? Are we a church that takes risks? Sometimes God calls us to do things that are uncomfortable. Sometimes God calls us to do things that don't make sense from the world's perspective. We talked a lot about God's economy. How God views success. How God views us moving forward. What does that look like to the Lord as we as the church move forward? It may look a lot different than we think it ought to look. But we are striving to understand what God wants us to think. How He wants us to move. Where He wants us to go. The commitments He wants us to make. The investments He wants us to make. And, and, we, and how you say, well, how do you know that? Well, as we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. And as we draw near to God and we seek God's face and we ask Him to give us His vision, God is going to be faithful to do that. That's how we do that. And last week we looked about... The last quality we looked at was an irresistible church. is a church that humbles itself. We looked at humility and what that means. Humility is obedience before God. Regardless of where He's called us to go. Regardless of what He has told us to do. To be obedient. To understand that nothing we enjoy is anything we deserve. That, we, that God blesses us. He chooses to bless us. He chooses to shower us with His mercy and His grace. And that should humble us. To know that we didn't do anything before that. That God made it a gift. And that should humble us. Today we reach the end of this road. We're looking at the last trait of an irresistible church. One that pulls all of this together. We can't get there without the final piece of the puzzle. The twelfth trait of an irresistible church, a church that God loves to bless, is that it has a plan. 
It has a plan. This kind of church has earnestly sought God's guidance. It has developed a blueprint from that guidance. And it has boldly stepped forward to implement that plan. This kind of church knows where it's going, or at least it's got a very good idea of where it's going. And, and importantly for us to understand, although uh, the church has a plan in place, it also acknowledges that God can change that plan at any season. God is in charge. We listen to God, we respond to God, we move according to His leadership, but if God changes the plan, we pivot. Because God makes the plan. But the church has a plan. It's a flexible plan. The Proverbs 16.9 reminds us, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Of course, it will be God who directs, but what will he direct if we don't have any plan? If we just move from day to day doing these things and we don't look out into the future, we don't, we don't project into the future, what, what, will, what will that direction look like? It'd be like traveling to a new place without a map. Tell you what I saw in Walmart the other day. I didn't even know they made these anymore. I saw a Rand McNally Atlas. I thought now that you could get anywhere by your phone, you didn't have to look at it on paper anymore. But I remember opening those maps. Some of the most famous arguments Elgin and I have ever had had to do with a Rand McNally Road Atlas. Married folks, you know what I'm talking about. we got to have a map. We've got to have a plan. So let's look at some of the biblical foundations behind planning, if you will. Scripture addresses those reasons that people fail to plan while also teaching us the prudence, the necessity of planning ahead as long as those plans acknowledge the sovereignty of God. The Bible teaches that it is honoring to formulate when we formulate a strategy for action as the church based on the knowledge that we receive. Based on what God teaches us, what God tells us. This way, we can have a divine blueprint, a blueprint, not just a blueprint. We want to have God's plan for our lives. We want to have God's plan for our families. God's plan for this church. God's plan for the kingdom. That's, that's what we want to find. One passage that seems to scare people away from planning, oddly enough, is James 4. James 4, 13 through 15. James writes this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Far from being a passage against planning, I think if we look at that passage carefully, what James is trying to tell us is that it actually reveals that we're prompted to make plans so long as our plans are guided by God. I mean, it's easy for us to say, well, tomorrow I'm going to go here and do this. I mean, we do it all the time, don't we? We keep calendars, whether it's, on a, whether it's a, your dinosaur like me and you keep your calendar on your desk or it's a part of your phone. Or your computer. We say, tomorrow I'm going to do this. Next week I'm going to do this. Three months from now I've got a date where I do this. We are planners. We're chronic planners. But I think what James is trying to say is that not that it's wrong to plan for tomorrow, but to understand who sets the guidelines for our planning. 
That it's God who makes these things possible. It's God who determines it. We're instructed to make plans saying if it is the Lord's will, right? If it's the Lord's will, I'm going to do this. If it's the Lord's will, we need to do this. If it's the Lord's will, this will, this will happen. We approach it in humility. See, this is a pro-planning and an anti-pride passage. We don't make those plans God does. And I think that really that takes a lot off of us, doesn't it? It takes a lot off of us. To understand that, that we can lay out the best plans we want to, but if that is not in God's will, if that's not what God is going to purpose to happen, it's not going to happen. That God instructs us and God plans and God leads. And so we rely on Him. In addition to being very humbling, it is to me very comforting to know that the God who created me, the God who breathed life into the universe, is planning me and planning you. He loves you that much. That He doesn't just spin you, wind you up and spin you off into the universe to do whatever happens. He's intimately involved with your life. He's intimately involved with the life of this church. Proverbs 16.3 says this, Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. If you flip over a page or a couple of pages to Proverbs 20.18, he says, prepare plans by consultation, my translation says. And Psalm 24 in the NIV says, may he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. See, planning is not wrong. Quite the contrary. Scripture commends planning. But here's the balance. Here's the balance. In Acts 16, 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul, if you remember the story, the Apostle Paul and his companions made a plan to go to Bithynia to preach the gospel. Right? That was their plan. They set out to do it. They said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take this period of time and we're going to go to this place and we're going to preach the gospel. But the Spirit of God, as we know, does not allow them to go to that region. He sends them to Troas instead, right? So, did Paul and them have a good plan? I'm sure the plan was great. But it wasn't God's plan. It wasn't the best plan for Paul and those that were traveling with him. The best plan was for them to go to Troas. You see, Paul and his companions planned for a certain course of action. But even though they did, they were sensitive to the Lord's altering of that plan. And I guess I'll ask us this. Are we sensitive to the Lord's altering of our plans? Or do we get fixed on something? And I'm preaching, boy, I have bloodied my own feet working on this this week. Are we so fixed in what we want to accomplish, what we want to do, that contrary to the leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit, that God has given us for such moments of that as that, we plow ahead. Part of being a, a mature Christian, part of growing in Christ's likeness, part of being a church that God can't help but bless, being an irresistible church is understanding that we need to be sensitive to the moving of God in our lives. And we need to be ready to do something different when God calls us to do something different. That's our invitation. The Lord invites us to use our minds. He invites us to prayerfully organize our thoughts, to chart out our strategies. He wants us to set goals. What would life be like if we had no goal? We had nothing to do. We were just drifting through life. 
He wants us to set goals. He wants us to be productive. But we must always do that. We must always undertake that with a sense of humility. Humility. Recognizing that God alone controls our destinies. God alone controls our actions. God alone controls us. Now God gives us the, the ability to make decisions. I, don't, don't hear me, I want you to make sure you hear me clearly on that. God in His sovereignty has given us the ability to make decisions. Part of that is understanding that God has given us the freedom to make the wrong decision. And if we make the wrong decision, then of course, what do we do? We deal with the consequences of that, of that decision. God always wants His best for us. God always charts a course for us if we are sensitive to listen. And sometimes we don't, but that's what we're called to do. In Jeremiah 21, 11, what does God tell His people? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I have that passage on a, a little card behind my desk. I look at that every day to understand that God has got a plan for me. And God has got a plan for you. And God has got a plan for every one of His children. The, 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 the question we have to answer is, are we going to follow that plan? And sometimes that plan will take us to a place where we don't want to be. We don't think we want to be. Sometimes that plan will take us to a season in life where God wants us to learn something that can only be learned on the other side of challenge. But always remember that God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. We are not random creatures. We're not random. God loves us. God directs us. He pleads with us. Sometimes He pleads with us to let Him give us the best that He has to give us. God has a plan for our church's future. Since God has plans, then God desires for us to know those plans. In His time and, and in His way, He desires for us to know what those plans are. We know that God would not keep these plans to Himself. Why would God do that? Why would God say, boy, I tell you what, I know i got an awesome plan for y'all, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'm going to make you endure something else so I can come back on the other end and say... Boy, if you'd only done this, it would have been great. God's plan for me and you is, is, is laid out. And if we'll listen, God will tell us. It's not a secret. And if we as a church will gather together and we will listen, then God will reveal His plan for us as well. He will, he will do that. The key for us then is to ask the Lord what His plans are. The key for us is to walk in obedience by carrying out those plans, whatever those plans may be to walk obediently. Our challenge is not to take casually the future that lies ahead of us. It's not to be cavalier with our future. Do you know where you're going? Do you have a blueprint for that? Have you begun to act on that plan? Have, have, have you listened to God as God spoken to you and said, if you'll, if you'll do this, 
This is where I want you to be. This is what I want you to be doing. This is where I want you to be going. Pastor Wayne Cordero once said this, in the end, God will not hold us accountable for what we have done. He will hold us accountable for how much we've done of what He asked us to do. Thought about that? So our calling is to sit before God, to write out the plans that we believe God is giving, for, uh, giving to us so that we can set our course in obedience. If there's one word that can wrap up this entire study, it's obedience. Finding where God is, drawing near to Him. Being obedient to His commands for us. Being obedient to His leadership and guidance in our life. That is, that's kind of what we're, we've been talking about. We need to make plans because we're in an era of unprecedented spiritual opportunity. I think we've, we have talked about this, whether I've talked about this with y'all collectively or y'all individually. God has done some tremendous things with the church while we've not been together. There have been people that have tuned in to listen to this church and others that have never darkened the door of a church. They've been hearing the gospel. Satan put this pestilence in our path and laughed when the church is closed and all God did was use other tools to make the gospel even more available. God has given us the opportunity to push reset. God has given us the opportunity to rethink how we do things. God has given us the opportunity to listen and to follow His leadership and to go in a place that may be scary. If you want to see scary, you have Scott trying to explain to me how the internet works. Okay? But it has to be done. It should be done. God has given us these tools. And that doesn't mean we don't gather together corporately. Of course we do. I have missed y'all. I have missed your faces. I've missed your comments. All of them. Even the ones that aren't great. But God has, has brought us into an, an unprecedented era in the church. And our call is going to be to listen, to be obedient, and to move. To go and to do and to reach and to love and to serve and to learn more about Jesus and to become more like Jesus so that we can live for Him. That's what we're called to do. All across the world. One thing we're finding out is that people are spiritually hungry. They're spiritually hungry. Scripture tells us the fields are white to the harvest and our love for Christ can compel us forward to introduce great numbers of people to Him. We have an opportunity for an explosion in evangelism. And that will lead the church into an explosion of discipleship. Because we can't simply evangelize and leave folks. We have to disciple. We have to help people grow. We have to help people to, to become the people that God has created them to be. That's one of, the, one of the beautiful purposes of the church is to disciple. What will God hold us accountable for in that day? Wayne Cordero outlined several questions that churches need to ask themselves. And I'm going to let you know those questions. I'm going to make sure I give him appropriate credit for that. If they want to plan, if churches want to plan the right way, a way that's God-honoring, a way that is Christ-following, we need to answer these questions. For what purpose does our church truly exist? 
Why are we here? What do we exist for? That's a question the church needs to answer. How about this one? Who do we want to reach? Everybody can get a picture in their mind of who we want to reach. I mean, it's easy to say, okay, well, preacher, we want to reach the lost. Okay, well, what does that look like? Who do we want to reach? Here's another one. What are we able to do well? And what are we unable to do well? Any pastor that stands up in a pulpit and tells the church that we have got it all together is not telling you the truth. There are things that we do well. And there are things that we can stand to improve on. And I think if we're going to grow as people and as a church, those are the kind of questions we need to ask. What are the main areas to be emphasized in our church? When people think of, of First Baptist, when people think of First what, what are what do they think of? What's going to be emphasized in our church? Would we like to see marriages strengthened in our church? I would submit to you that a lot of the problems we are seeing today in our culture is because we are not training up strong marriages. And because of that, we're not training up strong families. And because of that, we are raising generations of individuals who don't have the foundation that they need to live in this culture. So, do we want to see that strengthen? Do we hope to train up the next generation in our church? We're going to talk a little bit about that next Sunday when we're going to dedicate one of the next generation in our church. But do we hope to train up? What are we doing? What are we doing to train up the next generation? That has got to be a focus of the church. The next generation. How do we hope to be a blessing to our city and our community? What has God put us here for? Our footprint. Let me tell you something. We're not here by accident. We are not here by random chance. God moved to have us where we are right here right now. So, how do we hope to be a blessing? How do we hope to encourage a global perspective on faith and, and missions? Reaching across the street, absolutely, but also taking the gospel around the world to unreached people groups. There's still some 6,000 unreached people groups in the world. How are we going to get the message of Jesus Christ to them? That's, that's important for us too, especially as we support missions. Or as we support missionaries. Or as we decide maybe God is calling us onto the mission field. Five years from now, what do we hope our church will look like? How about ten years from now? These are questions we need to answer. And here's the final one. How is success defined in this church? Is success defined by the world's standards or our culture standards or is success for us defined by what God has determined is successful? So those are questions I think we need to answer. And of course, that list is not all inclusive. There are a lot of things we should do. There's going to be some things we'll want to ask ourselves that's unique to us, unique to our location, our specific mission in the kingdom. Whatever we do, though, there is one key component for all of our activities. We must strive for excellence. Jesus Christ and his sacrifice demands no less than our excellence. We have to strive to be the very best us that we can be.
Not the very best somebody else. Are we the very best that we can be? That's the question we need to answer. It's, it's who we serve. If we believe in a, in a God who is good, who redeems mankind from despair and darkness, then we should choose to, to live with that perspective with strength and with confidence that Jesus saves. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. But are we sharing the joyful sound? We should adopt a biblical and optimistic philosophy. Let me tell you something. A lot of times Christians are, are, are labeled as being uh, the people that we always know that what, what we're against, that we're negative, that we're down. But let me tell you something. Nobody has cause for optimism more than a Christian. Nobody. Nobody should look at the world with a greater sense of optimism than, the, than, than, than the, the Christian because we know who's in charge. We know that regardless of what the world looks like today, the battle has been won. The war has been won. Jesus Christ is victorious. We are redeemed. And we got to bring people with us. That's why we should have optimism. Scripture also indicates that God invites us to become excellent people based on the work that Christ has done at the cross. Christ is in the business of redemption. He's in the business of transformation. And the scripture that God has given us indicates that God wants us to be people of excellence. He wants us to be people of excellence. Psalm 81 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Another translation substitutes the word excellent for majestic. If God's name depicts His character, then according to this passage, we serve an excellent God, don't we? 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. If we follow this logic and we follow this reason that the Bible has laid out for us, if God created people in His image, then we should become an excellent people. And our churches should follow suit and become excellent churches. We need to remember that God is a God of excellence. And because of that, we need to imagine a future in which our church becomes the best it can be. A church of excellence. It'll take work. It's going to take work. Take a, a good look around. Let me ask you something. How did this place become to be? Just think about that. We've, we've got, I've been through the library in there. We've got histories of our church. But I'll ask you this. How did this place become to be? Let me give you the simple, the simple reason. It's here because someone saw it clearly. Even when the ground on this, on which this building now sits was still a vacant lot. Someone saw. Someone's imagined. Someone's were obedient to the leadership of God. They imagined what the future could be. And they made plans and they worked toward those plans becoming a reality. They were obedient and God blessed it. That's how we came to be. The next time someone's baptized in this church, ask how baptism became to be. It's likely because some seasons ago, someone hoped his friend would come to know Christ. Someone hoped their friend would come to know Jesus and share Jesus with them.
That person prayed and loved and befriended another person and eventually shared the gospel with that person. The Holy Spirit quickened his heart and he turned his life over to Christ. That is how baptisms come to be. The next time a single mother is given a bag of groceries because of the kindness of a member of this church, ask ourselves how this great thing came to be. It's because the church had a plan and acted in obedience on that plan. Art Linkletter, who was a great friend of Walt Disney, once shared a story that took place during the 50th anniversary of Disneyland. Um, after Disney, of course, it was many years after Disney had passed away, but Art Linkletter was invited to be there. And a man was sitting next to him and he asked him this. He said, isn't it a shame that Disney couldn't be here to see all of this? And Art Linkletter said, he did see this. It's why we're here. Stories told of a young boy who was asked by his father to check on the animals in the barn before he went to bed. And his father lit a lantern and gave him the lantern and set him on his way. And the little boy stopped and turned around and, and mentioned to his daddy, he said, I'm afraid this lantern has only enough light for one or two steps and then it's dark. And that father who was oh so wise replied this, just walk forward to the edge of your light and when you do, the next step will be illuminated. That's our invitation as irresistible churches to prayerfully see what could be in order that it can be and then we walk to the edge of our light. Walk to the edge of the light we've been given. And the good news is this. If you're willing, if we're willing, we'll hear heaven's, we'll hear heaven's voice say, come, let's walk down that road together. There will never be an absence of light. We're to follow the light. We're to walk to the end of the light we've been given and God will illuminate the next step and the next step and the next step. There may be somebody here whose first step is accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior. You see, these steps aren't going to make any sense to you. The way we're going to go about doing business doesn't make any sense if Jesus hasn't transformed your heart. Maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe that's who, how you, who you're dealing with right now is the Holy Spirit who's trying, to, who's trying to explain that to you, that you need to give everything you have to God so that He can change you and make you the person that He wants you to be so that you can become a part of a faith family, a family of believers, a church. And because of that, you can add your distinctiveness into ours, to borrow a phrase from Star Trek, you could add your distinctiveness to ours and together we all become exactly who God wants us to be. But to do that, it's going to require us to walk to the end of our light. and Let God illuminate the next step. That's why we're going to be taking a look at the road to revival. We're going to walk to the edge of our light. We're going to ask God to lighten the path so that when we step out in faith, we step out knowing that we don't do so alone, but we do it surrounded, in front of, behind, to the side, over and above, under, in the, wherever. God Himself walks with us. Isn't that exciting? To know that God knows what the next step is going to be, whether we do or not. God knows what the next step is going to be. 
It's for us to say, I'm ready to go. And the way we're going to take a look at that is by taking a look at revival. Hitting the reset button in our hearts so that we can hear God more clearly. Father, I just thank you so much for your love for us. God, I thank you for this place. I thank you for the the vision that, that you have given countless years ago. God, I thank you for the faithfulness of those who have come before us. Those who are committed to excellence. Those who were committed to ministry. Those who were committed to service. God, I thank you for the lessons that they have taught us, Lord. And let us burn brightly for the generations that come behind us. Lord, if there's somebody here who wants to walk that path but is afraid. Lord, I just pray right now that you will put a peace and calm in their spirit. That you will let them know that they walk this path not alone. But firmly and completely in your love. And there is no safer place. Thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name.